Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm just coming off laughing because I've been having a joyous conversation. My guest today is across the Atlantic Ocean in beautiful England. Let me tell you a little bit about Morris Evelyn Bufton. He has over 20 years experience in investment banking and financial markets. He's also an advisor and helps with executive search. He is the owner and managing director of Armstrong Wolf. And he set up his company in 2011 and has subsequently established his firm as a market-leading voice within the COO, CCO, CAO, Chief of Staff, and Business Management Spaces. So if you work with a C-suite leader or you are a C-suite leader, I want you to pull up a chair because you're going to enjoy this conversation. So Morris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Deb. Delighted to be here. You know, we were chatting before we hit record, and I got to say, I love Google because I wanted to find a resource for my C-suite leaders, and this is how our our paths crossed. And with technology, here we are having a chat. So I'm always always, uh, in awe when I type in exactly what I'm looking for, and there you were. It's a, it's a wonderful resource, isn't it? If we went back 25 years ago, actually, went back to the day I was born, it would be Star Trek stuff, really, wouldn't it? But now it's reality. It's day-to-day activity. Absolutely. When I was doing my research on you to prepare for our interview, I, I really wasn't surprised to find so many lovely comments about you. And I'd like to read one uh, from one of your colleagues and you were described so beautifully in this recommendation. He said, Morris has an ability to address difficult and challenging aspects of any relationship, offering well-informed and well-positioned advice. He's a rare breed in today's modern banking that he sees you and your business from a personal perspective and not merely as a commodity or a statistic or as part of an annual target. Beautiful. So my first question is, share with, the, share with the listeners when you felt that you really developed this heart-centered leadership quality in your role as a C-suite leader. Well, I think, uh, um, I think it's quite a long journey. I think there's many, many parts of the jigsaw that make up who I am today. Um, and some of them sound as if as if they may be cliche, but I think certainly the influence of my parents, which had a very value-based approach to life, always there, always telling us to do the right thing, even if the right thing wasn't the easiest thing to do. But I think the pivotal point in relation to my own personal development um, was actually the day I passed off the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. Um, yeah, I'm, yes, it's a 
academy and a college which is dedicated to leadership. Um, but I think it's more than that, um, because what that did for me, it created a sense of purpose. And in fact, many of what I, much of what I learned at Santos, I've carried forward to what we do today, because much of what we do today is focused around the CEO's role in influencing conduct, culture, and behavior. Um, and when you look at uh, the Royal Military Academy Santos, one of the principles they teach you is that the overriding influence on a person's behavior and a soldier's behavior is the person that leads them, and that you should never actually forget that responsibility. I also remember when I passed off from Santos, my father, grandfather, and great-grandfather were in the army as well. Um, and uh, I turned to my father and said, Dad, so what, what makes a good officer? And he said, it's very easy, son. You just have to remember they salute the rank and they fight for the man. And, uh, and I, that, so that was a sort of a, a point in the direction of that you had to have a degree of personal courage. You had to have a degree of empathy in relation to uh, leading your soldiers. <clears throat> and I think the other thing that you learned in the military is that a lot of people think the military is pyramidal top down you you say jump and your soldiers say how high sir it is absolutely the reverse of that it's a consensual approach where ultimately someone has to make the decision but you need an empathetic approach and, a, and, and the art of listening to make sure that you can make the right informed decision so i think that it gave me a purpose um it gave me a it gave me personal courage and confidence in myself without but a balance in that and i think it was really further refined in my last seven months of military service where I was privileged to lead my soldiers in a uh, United Nations tour in Bosnia, where you actually put into, you put into practice everything that you were taught. And it really was a privilege to have yourself tested, but also understand that, uh, uh, that your obligation was to your soldiers, not their, it wasn't their, their obligation to you. It was your obligation to lead them and actually, when you're leading with soldiers on average 18, 19 years old, I was, I was mid-20s at that age, it was a significant learning curve, but it was a privilege to be given that learning curve. So I think having, I would say that that is the, first, that's the foundation stone of what I've actually, I would say, of my journey. And I would say the other thing is that the foundation stone is recognizing and being open to uh, the mistakes on your journey in life, Yeah, of which I've made many. Um, and uh, uh, an ability to stand up and accept those, uh, those, and also apologize on occasion. I think they're all very, they're, they're cliches, but cliches have been proven to be cliches because uh, they've been being proven right over time. I don't know whether that answers your question, Deb, but. Uh, oh, you did. There's so many nuggets. I, I got to pull a couple of things out of there. I love how you talked about the conduct, the culture, and the behavior. I, I love how you frame that, but what I take from that and what I really, really heard is when you look at everything in the journey, all the transferable skills that you bring, especially from the military, that structure and the discipline of behavior is so predominant in leadership. And it was part of your journey. And I love that you talk about your successes, your wins, your failures. I think being a heart-centered leader is three of the things you mentioned, empathetic, being an attentive listener, but it's okay to fail forward because when you get up and lead and teach the lesson, that's the win-win in, in failing. So, so many good things there, but you led beautifully into my next question and we did not rehearse this. 
See what ha- see what happens here, Morris. So the second question has been around since the start of the podcast uh, last March 2020. What imperfections do you bring to your heart centered leadership? Ah, uh, what are my imperfections, or what my imperfections do I bring? Um, I think I have a. Uh, some would say that it is a uh, a weakness, but I have an uh, I have a deep rooted faith in human spirit to do the right thing, um, which means on occasion as a leader I have been taken advantage of, and on occasion, uh, more than one occasion, I have probably been found uh, responsible or targeted to have the responsibility for other people's failures. I think that I think that uh, I wear my heart on my sleeve. And I think that people may perceive that as a weakness and something to be taken advantage of. I have probably on many occasions thought to myself whether should I change, should I change who I am on my belief in human spirit to give people opportunity, you know, to give people the opportunity to rise above themselves to, um, and, uh, uh, but I've kept, I've kept fast at that. I've said, no, I'm not going to change. And it's been quite painful on occasion, you know, that uh, I, I, as I said, I've got some things wrong in, in many ways, the sort of how I've grown the business, how I potentially look back, how I could have made different decisions in relation to managerial decisions and leadership decisions. But what I've tried to do is keep the 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 personal moral code of what how I operate as a leader, and not to actually and not to actually, from skiing terms, go off piste from that journey. So I would say that I've created a great degree of potential vulnerability by my. Uh, uh, by my steadfast belief in human spirit and forgiveness. Well, you're you're going to get kudos from me because that is the epitome and the definition and qualities of a heart-centered leader. And, and like you said and alluded to in question one, it's been part of your journey. And I think when we lead with heart, there's going to be valleys, there's going to be bumps and barriers, but when you lead with heart, your head and your heart are aligned. And to me, I think that's such a, a high level of empathetic leadership. It doesn't come easy to a lot of people. So I'm going to say, Morris, keep leading with heart. My third question is, give us a little glimpse into the journey of your two books. The first one was No Place to Hide. And the second one was To Catch a Thief. I'm excited to get both. And why you chose to have a philanthropy slant, because I know you give the proceeds, they're, they're given to three different charities. So give us a little glimpse into how these stories evolved and why you chose to give the proceeds to the charities. Well, the charity is the third book, which I, th- that I need to bring into the conversation. We'll just start on the first two. Um, so I think the, fir- the first one, which is the No Place to Hide, the evolution of the role of the CEO. It's a pretty narrow reading audience. When I printed it, it was probably the CEO of my mother, God bless her. Um, um, but I think that's relevant to what was the journey of me to be looking at COO, which also directly links to the uh, the journey to the second book about the control officer, who principally focused on conduct and behavior. Um, so Q4 2007, I was running a search business, Trafalgar Partnership, uh, and uh, our about 80% of our income was uh, reliant on two banks, Lehman Brothers and RBS. 
Um, and in Q1 2008, we're all pretty aware of what happened then about the credit crunch and the over-reliability of the business on those two banks crucified the business ultimately. Now, at the same time, at the same time, my father had actually gone into hospital um, and he'd actually been given a, uh, they gave him the, they gave him the wrong injection, which instigated a stroke, which he died six months later because of that. Um, and he was an invest, he wasn't an investment bank. He was a retail banker. Yeah. He was a very decent man, a very decent man. And I remember on his deathbed, this was around about, this was Q2 2008. He was noting that at least I know I've left mum in good order financially. I didn't have the heart to tell him that he spent 39 years at Barclays and he'd lost 80% of his life's work and value because of the, because of the credit crunch. Now, ultimately, what happened was that the business had to be closed and then I had to take stock on what does this actually, what does this actually mean for me personally and professionally? Now, this is the link between what then took me to the, to the COO and conduct, because one of the things I started to look at was how did this all happen? How, what were the origins of the credit crunch? Um, and to me, it came down to, uh, I think there was a lot of a understandable anger and um, understandable, probably misinformation at the time, because actually I think overwhelmingly, apart from a very small bunch of individuals where there was malicious intent, I think it actually came down to poor judgment by a lot of individuals and ill-informed judgment as opposed to intent. So I then started to look at, well, who is responsible now to try to correct the uh, correct this wrong and it sort of fell into the office of the COO because there wasn't who else should be doing it. And it's at the center of the organization. Now, prior to that, I'd been doing executive search and focused on sort of middle office and product control. And a lot of those had actually, some of those had migrated into the office of the COO. So they were my sort of, uh, they were my carry forward. And I thought, well, now I'm going to nail my colors to the mast and that's all I'm going to do. So I had the parallel run between running, looking at the COO, because they are responsible for conduct, and actually then looking at the evolution of conduct itself. I then wrote a first article, which was defining the indefinable, the evolution of the chief control officer, another exhilarating read. And uh, um, I invited 25 COOs for dinner to discuss it. 29 turned up, and that was the springboard of my business in relation to, I started writing an article every quarter on the role of the COO I went out for <laughs> I went out for dinner with uh, um, he's a wonderful chap John Wisewick XEY and he'd read none of my articles and he just said what about this book you're going to do then I said what book John he said well you can't put them you can't just have them floating around why don't you put them all together in a book that's how the first book happened now at the same time uh, and ironically the first article became the first article my second book not my first book so so I think there was a, a an opportunist journey that led me to I think I was like everyone I'm a frustrated writer um, and actually but going I must say going from being a frustrated writer who's writing articles and distributing them to a known audience to go into print is quite an emotional journey because you have to you have to be really have a degree of humility because I'd say oh my god yes I'm pretty good at English and then you actually have someone proofreading it. You go, maybe not quite as good as I thought. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, but then I thought, well, actually, I didn't want to. Combination, I thought no one's going to buy the book. But uh, then the combination of now, I thought, well, well, I don't see any. I don't want to make any financial gain out of this. So what can we do? Is actually, I'd like to to incentivize people to read it, but also by incentivize people to actually be sense of giving at the same time. 
Um, and that was in relation to, well, specifically two charities. One is Sight Savers, um, and the other is the charity I set up in Bosnia, uh, in memory of the four soldiers that we lost when I was on service in 94, 95, and that's the Grass and Children's Foundation. Um, and the Sight Savers really goes back to, um, in 1994, my regiment had actually been was celebrating its 300th anniversary and its tercentenary. I came up with an idea. I was going to run uh, a marathon on each of the continents on Earth to raise enough money to give sight back to 300 children, um, which I did for six. But then we were deployed to Bosnia and I had to do a marathon on Christmas Day, which I'll come on to in a minute. Um, and that was why sight savers. And why sight savers is that I think if given the choice, I think that sight is the is the over, overwhelming gift from God that actually did use is sacred. Yeah, I think to to actually be able to see a sunrise, a sunset, to see the to see your child's face, uh, to to see. Well, I'm a spring man as opposed to winter, autumn, or uh, um, or summer. To see the first signs of spring. Uh, to, I think there are so many wonders that sight gives you that I think that uh, I think that it, it is. I mean, that's why I was focused on it. If you can give sight back to a child because it was all children, then that's no greater gift can you give. Um, and uh, so that was sight savers, and that was the first and the second book. I don't know whether you want me to say what the leap is into the third book because so I've got these these two books that that actually they were like bookends. The the CEO book came out first. My next book came out second, my Bosnia book, and then third book, my book on conduct and controls came out third. So the, the second book really is, I think to me, is, is, is at the heart of, of who I am and what I do. Um, in, so I, I set up a charity in 2012. Myself and uh, 17 of my ex-colleagues, comrades, um, went back to Barasta in Bosnia. So we were in a place called Barasta, which is one of the Muslim pockets which the, the British Army was sent to protect. You may have heard of, say, Zeppa, Zebanica. It was, it was in line with one of these things. But we went in to protect the, the, uh, the Muslim population. The town pre-Civil War, or Bosnian War, was about 20,000 people. By the time we got there, to, um, a, a UN exclusion zone around the town, there were 65,000 Muslims gathered into the town. And then we had to put a, we had to impose a peace on the on the war of factions because the Serbs were at the point of actually invading the town and then, and we we lost four of our soldiers in the first in the first three or four weeks there. Um, but in 2012 we went back to lay relay the memorial stones and we took with us one of the soldiers was Andrew Grant. Now he'd been involved in one of the incidents where three of his comrades had been unfortunately or very sadly and tragically killed. He had an epiphany at that moment. And uh, 17 years later, he came back as a priest to relay the memorial stones um, or to to the soldiers at the exact spot where he'd had the epiphany and also he'd lost three of his comrades. And that afternoon, we were taken into the we were taken into the school. We didn't know it was going to happen. 17 old, old, slightly overweight ex-warriors. Um, and then watched the school, about 130 children sang in Serbo Krat. They basically uh, were singing, roughly translated, they were thanking the British Army for saving their parents and grandparents. On a moment of, uh, an unplanned moment, I said to the headmistress, I said, what can we do to help? You know, we came here to salute the past. What can we can do for the, for the future? And she said, oh, 
we'd like to be teach our children English. And uh, I said, well, I'll do that. And also I'll turn your, bit of a cliche, I said, I'll turn your playground into, into a field of dreams because they couldn't play football because it was still, uh, there's shell marks from the war. And you wake up next morning and you think there's certain promises in life you cannot forgo on. So I then set about setting the, the charity up. Incidentally, Andrew Grant, who's one of my, the ex-private soldier um, who became a priest, six months after he came back, he married my wife and I, and he's christened all three of our boys as well. So um, so there's a continuity then. He, he was, I served with him. He was a private soldier. I was privileged to be a uh, captain at the time. And now he's our, now he's our family vicar. Um, and But then with this, the book, with the book, I saw an opportunity to leverage the goodwill of the global COO community. So I started talking about this. Well, at the end of these dinners I do, I said, I just want to take five minutes of your time. And I talked about what I was doing. And in no short order, I'd raised £75,000 from the global COO community. They paid for the production of the book. And then we paid for the rebuilding of the, of the school through the book. And the book's called Donkey Mel and Bully Beef, The Art of Surviving. And it's called that because when we went into... Garazda, the Serbs put a embargo around, so there's no food and no diesel allowed in. So we had to buy the donkeys to distribute rations into the mountains. And the rations were dried rations, bully beef. But more specifically, the only thing the Serbs allowed in was royal mail. So God bless Queen Elizabeth, anything with her head on it was allowed in every eight weeks. So we distributed the post that way. Uh, so that's why it's called Donkey Mountain Bully Beef. And we raised 75,000 pounds. We rebuilt the school. We've actually had a school uh, extension for the English, teaching English. And every year now, there's a, an essay written by uh, the under nine-year-olds of less than 500 words, or not more than 500 words. I dreamt of a faraway place. My boys' school headmaster and head of English, we then read all the essays. We appoint a winner, girl and boy, and they, we fly them, plus also their English teacher, to the UK. And they spend a week in our boys' school. Uh, and then they take back to them those memories. But I think more importantly, or equally, they also take back the living memory of the, of the reason we did it, which is actually to remember the, the four that died, the four young lives that we left, you know, in the, in the valleys of, of the former Yugoslavia. So what I've, what I've managed to do, because I'm fortunate enough to run my own business, I've managed to marry my own personal vocational journey and charitable cause and there's so many marvelous charities in the world and there's but this is my personal one this is my personal journey and somewhere is what is it what the uh to use a cliche somewhere in a foreign field that yeah there there lies an english there, there lies an english boy that and there's four of them in garasta so i've managed to marry my personal vocational uh drive driver with the goodwill and the harmony of the CEO community um through the production of my three books and it serves my purpose of actually uh, pretending that I'm a writer. Uh, and uh, <laughs> one day, someone, one day in about uh, 50 years, someone might pick up this book. Who's this uh, Morris Evelyn Bufton? Well, and, it, and it's a heart-centered leadership journey. And, and I love how you pause to, to look at how it, it all came together. And it's so beautiful. And really, it's it's crafting not only your leadership journey, your personal journey with heart, it's what you just said. It's your legacy. It's absolutely beautiful. So heartfelt. My last leadership question, it's a loaded one. 
but I want you to just tell me what's sitting on top of mind. What do you think is the number one frustration globally right now for COOs? The one, number one frustration for the COOs, I actually think the number one frustration for the COOs is, is uh, being their platform given the resources for them to be as effective as possible. Um, because I think a lot of COOs spend their time uh, firefighting and putting out fires as opposed to uh, the real value added aspect, uh, aspects that they feel they could add value. I mean, if you look from a, if you look from like the pandemic perspective, I mean, that was a comprehensive failure of the imagination by everyone. It wasn't as if the pandemic was an unforeseen event in history. It wasn't as if we had a, we had the, the alarm bells with SARS in the, at the early of the century. Um, but actually the, the COOs, I think, feel as if they were able to pivot their energies forward, horizon scanning, emerging, emerging risk. If they were able to actually spend more time on human capital aspects, yeah, then and use their platform, their centralized platform for better purpose, yeah, because it has visibility. A CEO generally has visibility over everything, high influence over almost everything, doesn't own everything, and it doesn't have. To. And I think there's a degree of frustration in relation to the underutilization of the platform, which comes to under resourcing. The other frustration that comes through that they in certainly financial services and in banking, in the cyclical nature relation to uh, scaling up, scaling down headcount, the CEO's office can become a soft target for headcount reduction because it's like, well, what do they do? And I always, I always say that the CEO is a bit like a, um, you're in a relationship um, and you decide to send, finish the relationship and you don't understand the value and everything that you enjoyed about that relationship till they've got it, until you've lost it. Um, so I think the, the biggest frustration is You've got an untapped intellectual capacity and a willingness to get things done and a capability to get things done, which simply is being restricted by uh, not limited faith in it, but actually possibly a limited understanding of the power of the platform and the willingness to give the investment to them to do their job correctly. Well, that was brilliantly said. And I was so interested to hear your answer to this because I am coaching COOs currently in five different countries and I loved your term. They are firefighting. And it's interesting that, you know, you piggybacked it with the second frustration and they do have high visibility. They do have high influence, but there's so much energy management put into that firefighting that they never get to the grassroots of what they really want to do. So I loved hearing how you framed that. And I'm, I'm wanting all COOs to, to know that we know, we hear you. Okay, finish this sentence for me, Morris. Heart-centered leadership is? The ability to lead yourself, to be honest with yourself. And if you're honest with yourself and you're, and you're transparent in being so, then the high percentage of people follow you with good intent. Absolutely. Beautifully said. Third question. Is there another book inside your heart that you're going to write? There is indeed. There is indeed. Now, this is really going off piece. Well, I want to write something for my boys, and I've got a, I've got an idea. There's a, there's a doormat called Marmion, who's the keeper of peace. 
The Lord of the land is a badger called uh, Burgwell, and the Lord of the sky is a barn owl called Gerwain. Uh, the only animal that can speak to Mother Nature is the hare called Caradoc. Uh, and it's an environmental book actually showing the trials and tribulations on nature um, through the eyes of, uh, of the animal kingdom. The Dormouse is effectively going to be the Druid, the keeper of time and myth. And I had to, I had to find an animal that hibernated, not many hibernate in the UK, because Mother Nature had to spend the time of hibernation to download legend, myth, and history. So the, the, the Dormouse on the first day of spring could actually then tell all the animals about their origins to this point of day. So now I've got three books out of the way, and I think I've proved I can write. I now want to write something I really want to write, which um, I don't know many how many COOs will read a book about a dormouse called Marmion, but um, you never know. Uh, it might surprise us. Well, and you've said something that a lot of my guests have said. They never thought they'd write a first book, and then they wrote a second book, and then they wrote a third book, and, and, and then... It's like, now I'm going to write something that I want to write about. So what a nice legacy it'll be for your boys. And it sounds intriguing. And you'll probably take it to a, a limitless level. So we'll, we'll have to stay tuned for that one. My last question for you, Morris, is leave us with a quote or a memory that has permanent residence in your heart. Well, one of the quotes is what my father said when I was at Sandhurst. Um, and uh, which was, you know, so remember some that they salute the rank and they fight for the man. The other is, it's a very simple quote, was my mother passed away last year. And on her gravestone, she always used to say this, whatever you do, just remember life is for living. And you know, it was to a degree a carpe diem approach to life. But that's, you know, she lived that. She lived that to the very day that she passed away. Every moment is precious. So life is for living. That's what I say. Well, that's beautiful. And I am, I'm so grateful that I found you through Google. I am in awe of the work that you're doing. I love your COO magazine. I thank you for creating it. My clients are loving it. I love sharing it with them. And I look forward to putting this amazing podcast interview out to the globe so everybody can find out about you. And I'm truly grateful for your time and expertise. Well, thank you, Google, and thank you, Deb, for, you know, for choosing me, giving me the opportunity. So uh, uh, I look forward to speaking to you again, hopefully. Absolutely. And we will share all of Morris's contact details and links to his book below in the podcast episode description. And I hope you take away from today a little bit from Morris's journey and that leading with heart is truly the only way. You've been listening to the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time and we'll see you again.